Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. Today, we're going to talk about all things driving with special driver expert man, Bradley Philpot. Brad is a test driver, an expert coach, and an endurance class champion at the Nordschleife. And today, we're going to be talking about things like why was Max Verstappen so unhappy with the virtual Le Mans event that happened recently. We're also going to discuss F1 driver styles and how you can improve in a sim or on a go-kart track. And we're going to answer some of our patron driving questions as well. And even if you don't do any form of racing, I want you to get into the mindset of of someone who does. Maybe imagine yourself going on a go-kart track or doing some sim racing or even pretend you're an F1 driver off of the telly because... As race fans, we have a disconnect that other fans of other sports don't have. Nearly every football fan, soccer fan, goes and kicks a football at some point, even if it's just kicking a football around with their kid or playing in a pub league or a local five-a-side league. They are there kicking a ball around and trying to do it as well as possible, trying to emulate the stars they see on TV and at the stadium. They're, They're trying to say, oh, can I put some slice on it with the outside of my boot. How do I best put my laces through that ball to stick it into the top corner? But I think as race fans, the vast majority of us don't turn a wheel. So I would like to have you guys and us think of ourselves for the sake of this program as let's think of ourselves as drivers. Let's think of ourselves as racers. And Brad will help us do that. So thank you very much to the crew for keeping the seat warm while I was having a camping holiday. And if you're brand new to Miss Apex podcast, you might not even know who I am because the crew did such a great job filling in. So thank you to Uncle Steve for all the production work. And of course, to Matt and Antonia for filling in in the host chair as well. I'm so pleased. I'm so proud of the guys because one of my main aims last year was to bring forward talent and uh, in the form of podcasting and presenting from our pool and really add to the squad depth and just make sure that you guys get to know more of the Missed Apex crew 
as personalities. And I think we're, we're achieving that. So this year, I want to improve the range of content, um, the range of personalities, and, and have that all improve, spread, and grow across all our formats because we're shoring things up so that we will remain an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We'll still aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute because while we might be wrong, we are first. Now I'm joined in the shed by Matt Two Rumpets. Howdy, Matt. How's it going? I'm busy stepping back from day-to-day running of my dishwasher. Okay, I have no idea what that means, but I do want to congratulate you on the best tech time yet. You even held my, my attention. I listened to nearly all of it. Wow, that is impressive. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I was very happy with the way that turned out, given the essential dearth of anything really happening in Formula One. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. And the, just the way that Summers communicates things, I always just find so on point. Like he very rarely wastes a word. He very rarely wastes the listener's time. And I think, I think that's why he's the best tech communicator in F1. Uh, yeah, and especially on the show where he can sort of follow, uh, sort of follow where he wants to go. It's, he's a real, I mean, I hate to use the word educator, but if you <laughs> want to understand more of the complexity of the sport, uh, you could pick no one better. And if you want to understand the complexity of driving, we could pick no one better than uh, Brad Philpot, who's also been a guest host here on Missed Apex. I have. I'm happy you're back in the country, Spanners, ah. and I'm, I'm thrilled to be back on the show to, to contribute something. Yes, and we should say, we should be honest up front, Brad, we do have an ulterior motive for the show today. We do. Um, we, we would like to promote an event and we'd also like to promote my own services. Um, yeah. I've, I've kind of gotten behind um, the coaching side of my work a little bit more in recent weeks, um, and I'm really trying to push the fact that I'm here and, and I want to help people get faster. Um, my tagline is get faster, faster. And if you head to my <laughs> website, bradphilpot.com slash coaching, you can learn more about that. But let's um, let's maybe give some people something for free before I get them to pay for it. We're definitely going to roll back around to that stuff. I just wanted to be honest and upfront, even though we've been wanting to do one of these for a while. Yes, we do want to we want to send people to bradfilpot.com for sorry, bradfilpot.com forward slash coaching. And we also want you sim racers out there to get involved in our 24 hour sim racing event that's happening in a few months time. But before we do that. Let's gloss, let's gloss the, our ulterior, ulterior motives off with the matte paint of some content. That didn't make sense at all. I've had a few weeks off. What do you want from me, guys? I've had a few weeks off. But let's start with driver coaching. In fact, we've had a great question from one of our patrons, Michael Holler here. And I think this is a great question to start us off before we go into the coaching, Brad. From a, a pro driver point of view, let's say you climbed from the sewers and eventually made it to the, to the pinnacle of F1. Would you, mind you, you're far too old for that now, Brad. How old are you now? I'm, I have to, I have to think about it. I'm 37. 37. So I'm younger than the oldest F1 drivers, but certainly not among the, <laughs> the middle of the F1 drivers. Yeah, no, actually, when I first met you, you were full of potential. You still could have legitimately climbed that ladder, but are you probably too old to start on the, that you'd be racing with 17 year olds in F3, wouldn't you? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm definitely far too old for anything okay. that doesn't have the wheels covered. Yeah, but yes, and I remember you once saying, "Hmm, uh, when I get to my mid thirties, that's the appropriate age for a GT driver, for a sports driver." Yeah, that's it. I mean, if if I was to happen upon a pot of money, I could definitely go and 
be a legitimate GT slash tin top driver for another 10, 15 years without too much problem. But mm. all the, the super fast, single-seater, sprinty kind of things uh, are probably a bit beyond me nowadays. So you're just like us. You're pretending too. Okay, let's pretend then, as Michael asks you to do, to put yourselves in the shoes of two F1 drivers in 2023. Would you rather be in Sergio Perez's position or in Fernando Alonso's position? Oh, okay. That That's a really interesting question. I'd rather be in Fernando Alonso's position, I think. Really? Because Perez is a driver who, I love how we're immediately on to F1 specifically. Perez is a driver who has reached his potential. He's had an opportunity in a top team um, for a couple of years. We can argue about exactly what car he gets versus Verstappen, but really we've had a chance to see what Perez's ceiling is. And it's not good enough to be a world champion. And that's probably quite obvious to anyone who watches Formula One. Whereas Alonso, although he's older and you'd never, you'd never want to throw away potential years of life if you're giving me this choice <laughs> of who I want to be, um, Alonso yeah. has a higher ceiling and is probably more satisfied in his driving life because of it. Oh, I don't know, Matt. What would you take on? Uh, well, so first of all, I think if you gave me a choice, I'd rather be Alonso because I think he's a better driver then perhaps no, i'm more interested in being a better driver than i okay, am okay. winning things which is my own particular weirdness but i i would i would change what brad said provocatively to with max verstappen as a teammate because i think given a different yeah, well, teammate perez yeah. could uh certainly in the car as it presented itself last season i think perez could absolutely win a, a world championship in it okay so that is a bit of a specific situation though because <laughs> It's not very often that, not really often that you're going to have an opportunity to be in a really dominant car and not have someone who's a top level driver next to you. Yeah. Because I'm not saying Perez can only not win in that car because his teammates for Stappen. I think there's a number of other F1 drivers who, if they were paired up with Perez, Perez would finish second to. So it's not only this specific if it's for Stappen as your teammate, he can't win. I think it's if half the grid roughly were his teammate. He wouldn't Ooh, win. That's a lot. I wouldn't say half, but that, we can have that argument. We can definitely have that argument at some point. You think Perez is in the top half of drivers? Yes, I think Perez is in the top half of wow, F1 okay. drivers I, I in the grid. Okay, well, I mean, you, the statistics, like if you look at F1 drivers who have managed podiums from a car outside of the top three teams, isn't he like number one in that statistic for the last 30 years? Yeah, Perez did, to his credit, do very, very well in those lesser teams but you also never really know how well that car could have done with an even better driver in it so uh you know you never know whether that car actually could have had even yeah. more podiums if uh oh look, look hamilton look, or verstappen or whoever was driving it. well this is it because you could have that argument couldn't you with with sebastian vassal and say well alonso in that red bull might have chased down jensen button in 2009 and might have, have e had an easier time in 2010 and not taking it quite to the line in in 2012 and and been even more dominant so i understand that argument but you know just like with f1 champions if they win in multiple teams you start to think no no there's you know there's definitely a connect here like hamilton he he won at Mercedes and then he brought that over to, to sorry, he won at McLaren, brought that to Mercedes. You go, that's a, a tick in his box. Vettel won four titles in a row at Red Bull and then has done nothing in any other team since. You start to go, well, maybe the car had a bit more of a hand in that. But, you know, with Perez, you know, he was he was looking like that kind of mid -drive, midfield driver at three different teams. At Sauber, at Racing Point, and then the completely different um, 
uh, Force India team. They, they are all completely different teams for the sake of this statistic. Yeah, I'm not arguing that he's bad by any means. <laughs> I just think he, he has a skill set which worked very well in those situations he found himself in, in those cars and in that era. Yeah. And, and I think in my point of view, he's kind of yeah. just below the middle or kind of almost oh. bang on the middle of the current crop of drivers. If we're, if we're measuring skill in general as a very basic yeah. measure and not really going into specifics. And, and I don't want to argue against myself, but I'm going to. Uh, the way he approaches races is often going against the grain, like with the strategy a little bit. He's got a, a sort of slightly different skill set to some of the other top drivers. Therefore, when conditions work in your favour, you're going to pop up and get a kind of peaky, a peaky result. But when you're at the top, you do need all your all your trump card boxes all maxed out to be able to consistently be there performing. And when you're in the midfield, a lot of time people only pay attention to you if you're crashing or getting that that cheeky podium win, which is possibly why Perez looked like a bit of a, a miracle worker in the midfield. And, you know, it didn't go too well at McLaren when he had a shot. Who was he with there? Button? He's up against Button, and then it's not looked too great against Verstappen either at the moment. Um, but yeah, I still still say top half, Matt. He's been unreasonable. I don't even want to talk about all the coaching stuff now. Super upset. Well, I'm not even sure top half is a correct metric for could they win a championship? Because we certainly at Red Bull not seen uh, Perez being the quote-unquote favorite driver. But what we did see is early in the 22 season, when the car suited him better than Verstappen, he won a race and had a clear enough advantage over the rest of the field. For me, it's easy enough to extrapolate that where he put in Verstappen's position, where he was the focus of the team, where they set up a car and designed a car mm -hmm. that worked best with his driving style, that he could have the, enough of a car advantage, and he's a good enough driver, that winning a world championship is absolutely not beyond him. Yeah, if it's if it's tuned for you, because I think, like for example, we don't really know how good Mark Webber could have been in that in that Red Bull because everything was focused, and you could you know everything was focused a lot towards Sebastian Vettel, even if on paper they had had the same car, which I don't think they did. Um, we could get into this argument all day long; it could run another hour. All I want to say is, in response to Holler's question, there is a non-zero chance of Perez having a run at the world championship in 2023. There is literally no chance that Aston Martin are coming out and producing a world driver champion this year. So I will pick Perez and I'll be in his position. Fair enough. Brad. I think I'm with Matt in that I would like to know that I'd rather know I was better and maybe you don't have as many trophies on the shelf to show for it, but I think deep down you will be more satisfied with yourself and you know, Alonso's made other errors in his career in terms of um, team choice and that kind of thing. And uh, he probably doesn't feel satisfied about those things. But in terms of the talent um, end of the spectrum, he probably can sleep quite well at night. And, and that's the one I would rather take. Enough of this slander. It's possible Michael Holler asked that question just to provoke me. But nevertheless, let's get on to the coaching side of things. And I think we kick off with... A great question from from another patron, patreon.com forward slash Mr. Apex, by the way, if you want to support us this season. Rob Asher asks, what does Brad think about the concept of F1 drivers having dedicated driver coaches? Coaches. Not many seem to have coaches, and there is perhaps a perceived stigma against using them. Um, 
And uh, that's that's actually quite an interesting concept because you would think an F1 driver, by the time they get they get to that point, I mean, they know how to drive, but top tennis players will have a, a coach that goes with them. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, so this is, this is something which I don't think has been ex- explored enough or frequently enough in motorsport over the years. And you're right, other sports have um, top sports people with coaches and they don't necessarily need the coach to be better than the sport yes. we're talking about or you know have been better in their prime that isn't the most important thing but i think in motorsport we have this idea that well if this person that's teaching me isn't quicker if they can't jump in this car right now and lap a second quicker than me i've got nothing to learn yeah. from them and that that just isn't what a coach is necessarily about in a way it is but that's a bit more of an instructor. So my role as, as a coach slash instru- instructor over the years has been a big combination of both of these. A lot of the time I'll, I'll have been sat next to someone, literally telling them when to break, when to turn in and, and the basics like that. But when you're coaching a professional or someone who is a, a semi-professional, it's a, different kind of, it's a different kind of world. You're not teaching them exactly what to do, but it's more getting them to reflect on bigger concepts and trying to um. trying to make sure they're extracting the maximum of the ability they already have and not leaving some things, leaving some stones unturned that, um, that they might have done had they been left on their own. So it doesn't really require you to, to be better than that person, faster than them, although it definitely helps probably if you are. You're unlikely mm. to find an F1 driver coach who is going to be quicker than the F1 driver, but they've probably got a lot of experience to call on from when they maybe were more that end of the... I can, you know, maybe- th- I can think of one instant example, which is Anthony Davison being hired to teach Lance Stroll before his, before his F1 debut. Yes, exactly. Because being fast today, right now in the test session we're in, that's that relies on you know, lots of things. Your current fitness, your, your experience level in that particular car, you know, what your aims are, um, how much you can afford to pay for the crash damage, etc. But the coach isn't in that position. The coach is there to make sure, like I said, you're getting the maximum performance you can yourself and and to maybe take more of a wider overall view of the situation and keep pointing you or nudging you in the right direction. Yeah. And uh, and that's where it differs a little bit from the, the instructor. Yeah, very similar in, in music as well, Matt. Obviously, Mrs. Spanners, you know, teaches everyone from kids and then will vocal coach for touring bands. And, and that singer might have a much more powerful voice, but it's the experience. Coaching is like a, a specific art in itself. Yeah, and to be clear, we're sort of delineating here between instructor and coaching. And I'd argue one of the reasons we don't see a lot of quote-unquote coaches in Formula One is because uh, in many ways, the race engineer plays that role every weekend because they examine telemetry and they can tell the driver exactly what, if the other driver is faster, they can look and say, okay, well, you need to brake later. You're putting too much steering angle in. It's, you know, too much grub on the tires, too much slip angle. And the driver is expected to uh, respond to that. When they can't, that's where someone coaching might be useful. And one of the things that you learn in your junior driving career is, is to kind of coach yourself by looking through the data trying to spot areas in the data and working with your engineers to find what you could have done better so as long as you care about being better you're always effectively doing a little bit of self-coaching but that won't fill in for the role of the professional driver coach where they'll get your mindset 
um, aimed a little bit more correctly. The engineer who's looking at exactly how many degrees of steering lock or how many bar of brake pressure you applied compared to your teammate, they might not have the experience or almost certainly don't have the experience of being a high level driver and what that driver is going through as a mental process necessarily. Mm. Um, and the coach's role, depending on how much input an engineer was having and how much the driver is proactive, because this does vary a lot between drivers, um, the coach's role will will be a little bit broad, but certainly help keep the driver focused on the right things rather than being specific in saying you need to use four degrees more steering lock at the hairpin. So I know a lot of the drivers famously have good relationships with a, a trainer, and I guess that's something different. So Lewis Hamilton has Angela, I've forgotten the, the surname, and uh, Carlos Sainz brought his trainer over from McLaren. But that's, that's different to a, a driver coach, isn't it? It is, although I bet they fill quite a lot of um, the same kind of roles. And I bet some of the reason why we don't see as, as many driver coaches or certainly don't hear about them is because the driving itself, because so few people have actually raced a Formula One car at, at super high level and won races, yeah. maybe the drivers feel like the the driving side of things itself it doesn't need addressing specifically. And as long as they've got a, a good trainer or a good mentor who maybe isn't necessarily a professional driver, maybe they fill enough of that role and the driver can be proactive enough, as we were saying, you know, mm. looking at their own data, working with the engineers, that they, don't, they just don't feel the need for it. So maybe in some cases that works just fine. Well, I mean, based on my own musical experience, like you do reach a certain level of professionalism where you don't necessarily take a lesson every week, but you will occasionally go to other people and play to get feedback, to get a different set of ears on what you're doing and maybe be exposed to some new concepts or exercises or techniques that, that you weren't aware of in an effort to continually improve yourself. So it wouldn't surprise me if from time to time, uh, F1 drivers might quietly reach out to people they know and trust and ask if they're in a position where, despite having all that data and telemetry, they can't quite um, achieve what they're after. Um, and so, so that would be my supposition is why we don't see more um, talked about in the sport. I think a really good example of, of where something like this might have been useful, and maybe it was employed, I don't know the ins and outs of it, is the Daniel Ricciardo situation over the last couple of years, where all of the data in the world and all of the efforts yes. of the team looking into the specifics of the problem couldn't get to the bottom of it. There was clearly some other underlying issue, and maybe a driver coach wouldn't have helped to uncover that, but that's certainly the kind of thing where someone who's kind of dug themselves into a hole They've looked through the data. They can see their teammate is doing a certain thing, but they can't make themselves do it. Maybe kind of scraping back to basics, kind of peeling away all the layers and, and starting from scratch and understanding why we do certain things as a driver and really understanding your own driving. And I think Ricardo actually said he had done this. Yeah. Uh, maybe that, that could have helped. Well, I saw the quote that said he saw, he could see it on the data, but he couldn't make it do that. So I guess we, we take it on faith that, that he had access to, to the same cars, but... It, it does seem strange that in a top, you know, historically top Formula One team with a very talented driver and all the data available, all their coaches and strategists, that they couldn't get someone like Daniel Ricciardo to close such a big gap. Either says Lando Norris is a phenomenon, like the likes of which Formula One has never seen before, or, or there was something else going on behind the background. And I, I don't want to start any conspiracy theories. Or, all I want to say is, if Daniel Ricciardo writes a book, 
my time Struth, my time at McLaren, I'm going to buy that immediately because I want to know what was going on. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I love conspiracy theories just like everyone else because <laughs> I'm heavily invested in tinfoil. But yep. nevertheless, to me, it's a question of Ricardo, absolute veteran, has been doing the same thing the same way for an awful long time. Lando was literally, as a driver, born in that car. And um, as an F1 driver, that is. And it's really hard if you're used to doing a thing you don't ever think about ever to be suddenly told, well, you have to now go live in opposite land and do it exactly the opposite. And it, it's hard because it's more than just it's more than just physically, oh, I'm going to press less hard. There's yeah. a whole lot that goes into it. And the more you think, the slower your processing time, the slower your processing time, the slower your reflexes, the slower your reflexes, the slower your lap time. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll get a really good direct comparison because we'll see Perez in the car in Barcelona and then we'll see Ricardo in the car in whatever the race is after that. So we'll get a direct comparison to see how he's doing um, and how his driving style compares. But th this is what I want to get to. I want to sort of go from, from F1, uh, maybe down a, a notch or two, Brad, because the margins with those guys must be so, so small. Like they, they are already so close to their potential but perhaps pay drivers aside. Um, so where's where's the step down where you think, right, here's where I could be kind of most useful? Because there's got to be a zone where where it becomes, it, someone's good enough that it becomes very hard to coach them. And then you will go all the way down to the likes of me and Matt, where anytime you sit with us, I, I gain a second just from you, you talking me through a lap. Yes, so i was thinking exactly this when we're talking about formula one drivers it, i'm not an f1 driver coach if i was i can imagine there would be a lot of situations where you'd be suggesting things to the drivers yeah. or you just couldn't find anything to suggest but you were suggesting things and they go yeah i've already tried that yeah whereas the further we move down the professionalism ladder the skill ladder the experience ladder the much easier your job as an instructor slash coach becomes because there's just more to gain in every mm. area um, all, even just in terms of experience, that, that, the more that driver will drive, the more the person you're coaching drives, the more you'd hope they will naturally get fast, mm. even without your help. But your job is to make sure that they're doing it correctly from the outset and that they're making the gains as efficiently as possible. They're not wasting 20 track days to find one <laughs> yeah. tenth of a second when you could find them a whole second in one track day, as an example. And so you ask where the balance is. Well, really, the balance is the lower down, the less the experience level, the more useful a coach or instructor can be. And the more of an instructor it becomes, because certainly when you're talking about someone who has quite low levels of experience or low levels of experience in a particular series or mm. car or type of racing, whether it's karting or sim racing or whatever, the more help you can be. You've just got more to say. Um, and that's really probably when it's most fun for, for everyone involved. Well, I had actually a question along those lines, although I do want to say from my musical teaching perspective, I agree completely. The most important thing is putting the horn on your face. If you do that every day, you eventually get better. Yeah. But a good teacher, a good coach will get you better so much quicker, and therefore it becomes a lot more rewarding much sooner. But I wanted to ask, and, and not at risk of destroying your business before it started, but do you find there's like a specific area that most well, let's take people like myself and Spanners. For me, basically, I'm still a beginner as far as I think about it. There's a lot that I don't know. Is there just a general area after all the time you spent sitting next to people with our level of skill 
that that is the most common place you can quickly find people time yes um although there are several areas which all are very high on the list they come up very very frequently if i had to pick just one um it would be something that spanners himself has experience of because we went through this exact process when when i gave him a bit of cart coaching and it's in terms of using as much track as possible it's amazing how many people you sit next to even who have driven a particular track a lot of times you know they know the track very well they know exactly where the next corner goes they know what the the rough racing line is and they might have done multiple races at that venue it's amazing how many of those people could use more track they just don't (laughs) and it's because it's never been pointed out to them they've been giving away lap time every single lap every single corner every time they've driven that track ryan reynolds here from mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, I wonder, even in F1, I do wonder sometimes you hear the, when you hear the team radio, because I've, I've started listening to uh, the F1 live when I was in a country where it was legal to do so. And you could, you could hear, you can tune in and hear all the radio messages. And the amount of times the driver co- uh, coach, or I guess the, uh, what do they call it? The team engineer is on the radio saying, you know, take take a little bit more curb here, break a little bit earlier there. So I think even F1 drivers at low speeds miss things. But as a rank amateur, I remember one time I was uh, following you around a right-hander and, and, and suddenly, you know, your left-hand tyre was on track, your right-hand tyres were on the grass. I'm like, what? How are you driving on the grass? And you said, well, there's no weight on that tyre and uh, I don't care if it was ice or, or polar bears, all the weight is on the left-hand side. And that suddenly, that made the track a metre wider. And there's all sorts of things from, from watching you that it would just not even have occurred to me to do that. And in fact, at, at one karting track, you were, we had you as an in-ear monitor. In, uh, that was me cheating and getting some coaching before a missed Apex karting event. We, we, we made them change the barrier in the end because you were getting me to take such advantage on the curbs that they moved the barriers to stop doing it. Um, but that's just, that's just something that race drivers see the muggles don't and to just kind of highlight how sometimes how difficult it is to get people out of these habits um, and why it is important to not just let someone who 
doesn't necessarily know what they're doing practice the wrong thing yeah. over and over. You know, Matt said the best thing is just to just to practice, but it helps to be pointed in the right direction. The earlier you can get someone into the correct style or technique in a certain area, and if we're talking about using all the track, that's a big mm. one, the easier they'll find it as they as they go forward. I was um, coaching someone a couple of days ago, and I won't name them. They're probably listening to this <laughs> podcast, actually. Hi, Derek. Um, this was some online coaching, and uh, probably the most obvious thing I noticed was this exact phenomenon, um, not, not using enough track width on the approach to certain corners. And we watched replays. I showed them what I was doing. I showed them what they were doing. It's pretty obvious difference. And we then set about doing their next session. And immediately they weren't using all the track again. They knew they were supposed to. They had me in their ear saying, right, now you go further to the left, no further, further. And they still kept doing the same thing as before. And they were quite you know, apologetic and they obviously weren't trying to ignore me. <laughs> it just shows you how hard it is to, to break the cycle. Even when you've only begun practicing, you know, this isn't a super experienced driver. They're not yeah. totally ingrained set in their ways, but the longer you become set in your ways, the harder it is then to fix those problems later. So all the more reason to, to get an instructor or a driver coach to start off on the right foot. The problem is we all drive and, you know, as, as motorsport fans, we all drive a car and we all take our shopping trolley, you know, down to Tesco's and, and take the apex coming out of the out of the, the fruit and veg aisle uh, into the cold meats and, and delicatessen counter. And it's, it's hard to shake that that habit. So like you've been a, an instructor at a, uh, a world famous uh, track track day venue. And there, I went to one where I, my, my wife bought me a, a ticket for a single seat to experience. And I was behind people who were literally driving a single seater car. I think it was the Formula Silverstones on the Stowe circuit. And they were literally driving it like you would a road car, you know, braking nice and gently to the junction, i.e. the corner, and then kind of feeding the wheel and getting away. And, and it's, you have to get away from that mindset because you're so ingrained in this is how you drive a vehicle that they're not attacking a corner. Is it, is it difficult to get, you know, a, a middle manager or a barista or a, an IT clerk to, to sit there and attack a corner like a race driver? Yeah, everything you've said there is is a thing that I've come up against in my instructing life. Um, and it, it is that the fact that someone has driven to the track and they might have been driving for 30 or 40 years in some cases on the road and maybe sports cars as well. Yeah. So they they have a they have way too much of a connection between the road driving and the track driving and think things that they would do on the road are relevant <laughs> to the track. And, yeah. and in reality, there's very, very little apart from the fact that some of the controls are in the same place. The steering wheels in front of you, the pedals are done with your feet. Even the pedals aren't necessarily done with the same foot as you're used to doing, doing yeah. them with on the road. And the reason you do certain things is entirely different. The reason you hold the steering wheel in a certain way on the road for example, might be because, you know, you might feed the wheel so your hands are always near an indicator or so you're very smooth and slow with the steering and progressive. On a track, you need your hands in a certain position on the steering wheel so you always know where the wheels are pointed and you never let go from that position. You don't have any indicators to worry about. The, the importance is in a totally different area. Um, and obviously, you brake a lot harder on a track. You, you're not worried about... There are no solid curbs like you get on the road for you to curb your alloy wheels on. Um, we want to use all the track. If you nibble the edge of the grass, it's That's not good. a problem <laughs> yeah. in most scenarios. Yeah. There's there's so many things that are different that, yes, quite often having a lot of road experience, which people would see as a positive for their track driving, you know, they think I, I'm good at driving. It's quite often totally the opposite. And if you take a 
a minor, if you take a 16-year-old or 15-year-old, I guess, in America, because I think they can drive quite early over there on the road. 16, you take a, think, yeah. a, a, a kid who's physically big enough to drive a car, but has no preconceptions whatsoever about how to drive a car, it's quite often easier to instruct that person than it is to instruct their parents or a much older person. I remember instructing, um, it would have been uh, Roman Abramovich, I believe, was, was a football team owner, wealthy chap. Yeah, whose Chelsea, son, yeah. Chelsea owner. I don't know whether yeah. he still is. I've got no idea. Uh, no, not since recent events. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, anyway, I instructed his son in a Ferrari when his son was 14. Um, and he was really good because he just listened to what I told him to do and didn't try and think about it any more than yeah. what, how to get around a track. Okay, so look, uh, guys, I just I want to be clear here. I have an ulterior motive. And there's something in it for me to say to people, go go along to bradleyphilpot.com forward slash coaching because I've effectively had Brad's ear and have been able to ask him driving questions for the last seven years. Um, I know you don't, you don't like Kota, so you don't want to coach me to win the next F3 round. It's actually not because of that. I'm away kart oh, racing okay, for a okay, weekend. Okay. So I'm testing at one track <laughs> and then racing at a different track on the other side of the country. But I would have done it otherwise. Here's an interesting thing. How long do you think it would take you to coach my, my 12-year-old to be able to, to beat me uh, or beat my time? He already has a little bit of experience, yes. a reasonable amount of experience on a sim. So yes. um, I wouldn't need to teach him the super basics. I imagine you've already passed on a lot of oh yeah, so an excellent coach, things. yes, um, and, and, and 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 terrible habits of mine as well, I suppose. Potentially, <laughs> I mean, he also is a big motorsport fan, isn't yes. he? Because of you, yeah. so he he will understand a lot more than the average person would of his age. Um, I I think it's definitely possible, given some time, I could coach him to be better than you. But a, a lot of what that would depend on would be how much he wants to, yes. because um, as with all sports or skills. The, the determination or the desire of the participant, um, the person being taught, has a massive amount um, of an effect on the ultimate outcome. Well, if you message him and say, I reckon I could get you to beat your dad's time in an F3 on iRacing, he will definitely see that as motivation uh, more than anything else. So that's, I'm going to try and cash that in, guys. So just, just so you know, I am benefiting personally by asking you to go to bradfieldpot.com forward slash coaching. The link will be in the show notes below. Matt. Well, I was going to pose a more interesting, and I want to say, like, what you're talking about with older drivers, can we just call that the Ricardo effect from now on? Because I yes, think that's exactly. really what you're dealing with. Um, but I noticed, um, and not to make this too personal there, Spanners, <laughs> but that at our last spa race, you and I were much more of a similar pace. But after yesterday's practice, now that you're back with your fancy equipment, you are once again a bit faster than me. Uh, yeah. So a slightly different question. Do you think it's possible for someone as old and set in my ways as I am to reduce that equipment gap? Because I'm not getting any of that fancy equipment anytime soon, unfortunately. Unless we get more people supporting us at patreon.com forward slash mistapex. So your question is, is it possible to, to get you better with the equipment that you've currently got to reduce that gap? Um, I mean, ultimately, if, if it's physically possible to do faster lap times with the kit you've got, which I assume it is, it is. Um, then, yeah. then theoretically, this is something well, that well, can be done. You only have to look at Kyle Power, who's faster than, than all of us, uh, not you, Brad, but us, um, with, with very basic kit. I think the, the difficulty is 
how much you rely on the feedback that the better equipment can give you. I know for a fact, I know, while Spanners was away on his on his European travels, he did some sim racing at, uh, at a, a sim venue center. which yeah. wasn't using his own equipment. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't have been set up for, wasn't set up for you. It probably wasn't as good as the equipment you normally have. And I know for a fact, if I was in that situation, I would be so much slower, I wouldn't want to do it. Because I'm relying so much nowadays, certainly, on the very strong feedback my simulator wheel gives me um, and how firm my pedals are. I've got fancy hydraulic pedals, all this kind of thing. So I'm now used to the fact that I've got fancy, expensive equipment that gives a lot of realistic feedback. And I would then struggle going to equipment which doesn't give that same amount of feedback and doesn't give me the the sensations that I'm looking for. So as long as you don't care so much about that, as long as that's not crucial for you and some people are able to be extremely fast on simulators on the much more basic cheaper less well-developed equipment um if that isn't such a problem for you and you've got the time and um and you want to put in the effort to find that extra time it's possible but there will also be a you know a limit to your skill at some point too okay fair enough i appreciate that Okay, uh, let's move on to another question here from a listener and back to F1. And Mark asks, uh, when we talk about driving styles in F1, just how big of a difference is there between drivers? People talk about the understeer and late braking, but I rarely notice the difference on TV. Uh, I think we've had a go at trying to describe this in the past before, but I know uh, Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel used to talk about how one of them veed a corner whilst another one carried speed there would have been maybe more variation in the olden days is maybe less so now how, how much of a difference are we talking so unless we're looking at very extreme examples of these things generally when we're talking about the varying styles of an f1 driver you're talking about that within an extremely narrow margin there might be like i say specific mm. examples where one driver goes a couple of meters wider than another on an approach to a corner. Um, but most situations when you're talking about someone who prefers a slightly oversteery car or someone who prefers a slightly understeery car, etc., these kind of things you hear spoken about on TV, they won't be something you can see on the TV. We're talking right. about differences in the weight of the steering at a very specific phase of the corner by, you know, a couple of Newton meters different. And one driver likes that feeling because that's what they're looking for as part of their formative years. They, they will have just gone through series and had setups in the teams that they were in that relied more on certain traits from a car. And they will have got used to that and then liked that. And then that's kind of baked in as part of their preferred style or the, mm. the preferred feedback they get from a car. And another driver will just have a very slightly different experience because everyone's route up through the ladder the different teams the different cars they've driven will be slightly different um, and so there will be some variation on what the driver sees as an ideal response from the car in different situations but it will be in such a small percentage of difference that looking from the outside as i say, unless it's a big extreme obvious thing which is quite rare you're not going to see it okay i haven't gone and looked this up but i do want to say with regard to lines through corners where you're talking about round lines versus v's there was a race where carlos Sainz was chasing i believe it was sergio perez and there was a sort of a final hairpin corner before a long straight maybe jetta and you could watch because of the different car characteristics you could see perez make a very round turn as he tried to maximize the speed through the corner because red bull wanted top speed 
And because the Ferrari wanted acceleration, Sainz was literally stopping a quarter of the way into the turn, having it turned all the way around and trying to get maximum acceleration at the start to catch him. So you can occasionally see these differences on track. The only thing I'd say with that example, though, is you've got two drivers who may well have wanted to do what the other one was doing. It's just the fact that the car they're in and the situation they're in, level of tyre wear, the fact they're behind another car and the aerodynamics are upset differently, or just the fact they're in very different cars, necessitated driving it in a certain way to get the best out of that particular package. So I still don't think you could really point to either of those and say they were driving style differences mm. um, from between those drivers. It's more a case of that was what they needed to do in that situation. If you flip their roles, they might have done the exact thing the other one was doing. Uh, yeah, I'm agreeing with you here. I think it's the car characteristics that demanded them to drive that way, not that they prefer themselves. Because I think at a certain level, you drive the car you have, not the way you want. So as viewers, as fans... Can we can we largely ignore that kind of chat? Like, or, or are we talking really on the fine margins and more of a, a curiosity and a footnote? There's definitely something to it. Um, we saw with Perez versus Verstappen earlier in the year last year, I think it was that Perez was able to just deal with an understeery balance in general a bit more than Verstappen was. or He, he didn't hate it as much as Verstappen did. Um, and Verstappen just preferred the car mm. to be slightly more on the nose. I just don't think it's really much of a visual thing that we could tell from the outside. You'd need to be behind the wheel, experiencing it, feeling the weight of the steering at various phases of the corner and feeling how the car responds. And it, it's kind of, when you're talking about how light the steering gets at different points, that's not a thing you can visually see. We're not talking about big, smoky moments of oversteer or understeer at various points, which are very visual. Is it, was it, would this have been more easy to see, like going, you know, back maybe even to the 70s? Or is this something that you could see when you were instructing or are instructing on track or on sims? Can you see a, a, a driving style emerge then, for example? Like, can you see that I have a driving style or Kyle or Matt? Generally, if someone is far enough off the ultimate pace that, you know, say they were one second off what the car yeah. could do, which would be quite a typical region to be coaching or instructing someone at, then I, don't, I wouldn't care what their preferred style is. <laughs> Just They're do doing it. it wrong. So they need to, <laughs> until they are on the pace of what other people could do in that same car, their own preferred style is not relevant because mm. I don't, you know, unless they're happy to go around at the back of the grid, being happy that the car is slightly more neutral or understeery or oversteery um, because that's how they prefer it. It doesn't really matter. Right. You need to drive the Just, car how it needs to be driven. Once you're at that point where you are able to lap as quick as the car can go effectively or very near to it, then we can talk about, you know, specific style preferences. So our friend Danny Henney has, um, has asked in our Patreon Slack group, how would Brad describe his own driving style smooth aggressive uh, what do you want from the car what does he personally need from the equipment to be fast and you're someone who has driven a a vast variety of different race cars yeah so i've i've had the the kind of luxury in my life of getting to drive everything from a formula 3 car to a british touring car endurance gt cars they all handle very very differently they all require a different kind of driving um but although I've been asked this before, it's difficult to answer because ultimately, similar to my previous answer, mm. you have to drive it whatever the fastest way is for that car to be driven. But Danny is onto something in his question there. What's, what do you need from the car to get the best out of yourself? And I would say I'm a driver who, who likes the car to be very neutral, as in 
just do what I'm saying. You know, when I turn the wheel a certain amount, respond to that. Don't don't fall into understeer. Don't fall into oversteer. However, this is an ideal which which is kind of um, unachievable. Yeah, how often um, do you a, get that? <laughs> a fully neutral car generally means you're not driving it fast enough. You're going to fall into understeer or oversteer once you reach the limit. And if the limit is both axles slide at exactly the same moment, then you're just really lucky. You know, you found yourself in a beautiful race car, but unfortunately oh. that doesn't normally happen. So oh, right. yeah, I would hang. say given, given mm. a realistic scenario where one of the axles will slide before the other <laughs> one does, um, for me, I prefer it to not understeer. Okay. I'd rather it didn't oversteer either, but I'd rather, I'd definitely rather it didn't understeer. So this is interesting, a from uh, from watching it on TV point of view, and and also I'm going to try and apply this to my to my sim racing. So that's something I'm probably missing, which is in a car I'll probably see it more. Is that I'm supposed to have one or the other trying to slip. So if they're just on the rails of where I'm trying to put them, the wheels, and they're not moving sort of sideways out into the corner at all. That's likely because I'm not pushing hard enough. Yes and no. So you actually don't want the vehicle, whatever it is, car, sim car, real mm. car. You don't actually want it to be understeering or oversteering, but you want to have found the point where it is about to, or it is doing it in a very small way. You know, where you're on yes. that precipice where you're just starting to understeer or oversteer. Um, and what a lot of people forget is that a corner isn't one homogenous thing where, you know, you find that limit, and that's it. You've done your job. That limit will change yeah. based on where you are in the corner, how fast you're going, what you're doing with the brakes or, or the throttle, you know, the other controls. And so making sure you're on that limit, uh, the, the fastest that that tire, the set of tires can cope with the scenario at all times and changing your inputs in real time to make sure that's fully maximized all the way through a corner. That's something which is, you know, a kind of higher level skill and something that it, when we're talking about the basics of, of race driving, track driving. We don't tend to cover that often. And, but yeah. yes, you should be. Something you should be looking out for on the sim, and that's why you have a fancy steering wheel, so you can feel, I say steering wheel, wheelbase, yeah. so you can feel this limit more of the time, and you're not just having to rely on hearing the tyres squeal or seeing the screen, the angle of your car change on the screen. So this is something you will feel if you just go on an outdoor cart track, is you will feel the grip change throughout the corner. And it's perfectly possible to get the entry right and feel like you're biting and really get into the corner and then and then lose it you know, into, into the second part of the corner. Whereas if you're playing it on a video game or watching it on TV, if you're playing it on a controller, you it looks like a very, almost like an on-off switch into a corner. They stop for the corner, they point, and then they accelerate rather than it being a journey all the way through. And I think, Matt, that is, Brad's right, that is where I, I felt a disadvantage when I went back to a, a less good wheelbase, was it, it felt much less detailed through the corner. Uh, yeah, and I just want to highlight what Brad is saying. Uh, from a kinematics point of view, uh, if you have a balanced entry, you're going to have an understeer mid, at least in a single-seater aerodynamic car. So there's never a perfect setup that gets you balanced all the way around the turn. And as part of that, I wanted to ask, Brad, one thing I've noticed watching your sim videos and your in real life racing is you the amount of inputs, especially in karting, that you put through uh, the middle part of the turn especially is just amazing to me. Is there something that you're trying to is, – is there some reason that happens? That like, I don't do that when I go through. And obviously that's, I'm not the driver you are, but I don't see every driver doing that. So 
Could you maybe t- take us on a little journey through a turn that way? Yes, exactly. So what you just described there, the, the lots of kind of micro inputs through the middle yes. of a corner um, are something that I, I was going to talk about, actually. If you see a driver making a big correction, you know, turning into a slide, that is a, they've, they've generally made a mistake, carried too much speed, got on the throttle too early or something else, you know, some, maybe they've got a puncture or maybe they've hit a bump or something, but it's not a desirable thing unless you're drifting or you're in a rally or something like that. In circuit racing, certainly in a car with lots of grip, like a single seater or F1 car, you don't want to ever be making a large correction, something that's super visible. But Mm. these micro corrections, lots of very small input changes through the middle of a corner are essentially just trying to maximize the the limit all the way through the corner. It's, It's effectively what I was just talking about in the last point. If you see a driver who is able to just turn into a corner and not adjust the steering all the way through that corner. Either they're in the position where they've just got more than enough grip to make that corner. You know, maybe if they're in a very high downforce car, sometimes you don't need to make any corrections. You've got so much downforce through a particular corner, you aim it where you want to go, the car isn't moving at all, and it's impossible to reach a higher limit than that. Maybe the higher limit would just cause the car to understeer slightly. You can't make a correction for understeer other than go a bit slower um, or or lift off the throttle very slightly. But depending on the situation, that's not necessarily possible. However, if you're on the limit where there's um, a little bit of a lack of rear grip, but you're trying to maximize, make sure you're not giving away any lap time at any point through a corner, that's when you'll see these micro corrections where the car is dancing on the limit, not necessarily ever getting out of control, out of shape but you'll see the driver making small input changes with the steering wheel as the level of grip, as the car is telling them the grip level or the situation is changing. And all of those are entirely subconscious. You mentioned this near the beginning of of this chat. If you're having to think about that, then you will then have to make a bigger correction. And the aim is to get to a point where the driver is good enough that all of that is subconscious and they are just confident that they can be on that limit and your hands will just take care of the mini corrections all the way through the corner and to the outside, it should look like if you weren't looking close up at the steering wheel on an onboard camera, outside the car should look stable and smooth and on a consistent trajectory. If you zoom in on the steering wheel, you'll see these very, very small corrections with the steering wheel, just holding it on that limit. So this is, as, as viewers now, we can, we can sit and we can look out for that um, on, on board. Uh, but what I noticed with the Mercedes, it, I noticed this with Rosberg and Hamilton in uh, sort of uh, 15, 16, is it did definitely seem like one movement. It felt like it felt very smooth and very easy because I guess, you know, that that was an era where they were really far ahead and they were just bolting a, a ton of downforce on. And then especially, in fact, maybe even if you look at after F1 had that knee-jerk reaction to the slow lap times and they said, no, we need to be the fastest and they were bolting even more, even more on. But maybe in this era, we can have a look at the onboards and see a few more adjustments. Or if you look at, say, Alex Brundle's videos where he goes and drives classic cars and there is there's a lot of correction through a corner there's a lot of movement perfect example alex has been posting some videos this week where he's driving a a a lister jaguar i believe around donnington Um, and there we go there's an example of a car that doesn't have lots of grip and it requires him in order to be on the limit he's having to make loads of corrections all the time and all of those big steering movements you can see and they look big because the steering wheel's big they're generally actually quite small steering motions when you when you get to the point of the tyre itself. Um, he's having to do all that totally subconsciously because he wants the car to be on the limit all the time. He could easily drive that car around, make one really smooth steering movement, 
and get around the track. But he would be so much slower than doing it the way you're seeing him do on the video um, that, uh, you know, there's obviously a reason he's having to drive it like that. I feel like to be on brand, I need to point out he's also on cross-ply tires. Yep. So, okay. so the cars on cross-ply tires, the, you know, the tire itself um, responds best to being driven at a certain slip angle. Um, but even, even within that, you, he's having to make corrections during you know the, you, the car is set up and it's slightly sideways on the way into a corner but he can't then just hold the opposite lock on at a certain point he's still then maximizing the exact amount of opposite lock he needs at, at all times so but yeah those oh. those cars do respond better by being a little bit out of shape all the time oh i like it i like this so we can play a little bit more amateur driver coach you know how we we all like to be armchair strategists and armchair race control so i think we can be armchair driver coaches now as as we look at the hand positions on the on the onboards and so so if we are seeing a driver who is going into a corner and it just looks like one big smooth movement I, I, we could you could in our amateur opinion go oh i don't think he's i don't think he's pushing that to the limit or will we see the the midfield drivers or say someone in a williams that might have you know less of an aero package we might see them being a little bit busier and then maybe not judge them as, as harshly as, as we might otherwise do. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, if you do see someone in a Formula One car able to just take one lovely, very smooth <laughs> steering movement into a particular corner, the reason could be, uh, it could be a number of different reasons. It might be that they are not pushing on that lap. It might be that you just haven't seen, you're not looking closely enough and actually they are making lots of tiny corrections, but from the perspective you're looking you just can't quite see that. It might be that they've got a surplus of grip in that scenario, in which case they're just not needing to make any oh. corrections. And depending on your setup, different corners, you might have set the car up for a particular part of the track, which means at other parts of the track, it's just easy. You know, some corners are just easily flat out and you don't have to make a correction. But quite often you do. Will that help us tell the difference between when someone's tyre saving or fuel saving? Oh, 100%. And that's <sighs> something I've, I've forgotten. I've neglected to mention that they could just be trying to tire save but that's not they're not trying to tire save by not making lots of corrections mm. they're trying to tire save by just generally driving more under the limit and when you're driving more under the limit you're not having to make the corrections that you need to make when you're on that limit because you so, have enough grip for what you're trying to do exactly yeah. yeah you're you're under driving the tire in order to preserve it you're not stressing it as much so yeah it could it could be that and in fact in a lot of cases it probably is that i just want to add along those lines qualifying is really what you're going to watch if you want to see that, because the race pace of the cars on full fuel, they're not, they're nowhere near the limit that they are when they're in, in qualifying, when the cars are light and everyone's trying to drive as absolutely fast as they can. And I think you'll also be looking for this kind of thing that we've been speaking about for the last five, 10 minutes or so, more in the slower and medium speed corners, because the nature of a Formula One car is it has more grip the faster it's going. So through the high-speed corners, certainly with this generation of car, in most high-speed corners, they're pretty planted. So the, they probably aren't having to do a lot with the steering wheel other than aim, aim their projectile through the corner. At the lower-speed corners, where grip is more of a premium, they, you, that's where you're going to see this kind of thing we've been talk, talking about a lot more. Okay, let's, um, let's uh, finish with a, a last uh, listener question before we quickly talk about the virtual Le Mans. And this is, I think, more general than F1. Uh, Maria says, this is a silly question, but is adaptiveness to different driving styles something you consciously apply on demand or do you just feel the car? I was thinking, for example, of Alonso. We, we never say about him that he prefers a car so-and-so. He just drives 
all the things fast? Does he consciously adapt or does he just drive without thinking? And then I guess my tag on to that would be, Brad, if you do find yourself in a oversteery or understeery car, you know, what, what do you do to adapt to those things? Yeah, so first off, in the moment when you first experience that, you've left the pits and you're going out and the car is revealing its handling traits to you as a driver, you are not thinking about how to adapt to it. The car will do a certain thing and you will use your subconscious, hopefully correct driving abilities to deal with that in the appropriate way. So you get to the first corner, you experience some understeer, you're not consciously thinking about the understeer, but you will realize that's happening um, by the fact that the steering doesn't do what you tell it to. You turn into the corner and the amount of rotation you've asked for doesn't happen. Um, the steering isn't as heavy as it could be. You can feel through kind of your inner ear uh, that the rear isn't moving. The front feels like it's washing out. It's giving that sensation of washing out. Um, and then you know that's understeer. And the appropriate response to that is to not try, and in, not try and increase your speed, not try and increase throttle. Just keep reducing speed until the front <laughs> tires bite enough to do what you want them to do and then try again and then try and you know find that limit. Um, and obviously not in, not increase steering lock either. If you find that the car's understeering, if you've turned a certain amount and the car isn't doing what you're telling it to, turning more just means it's definitely going to understeer. So you just try and avoid doing those things. But all the things I've just said then are happening in a fraction of a second, totally subconsciously. It's just we're vocalizing it here and yes. it takes a bit longer to explain no, it, no, it's it nice to, to do it. Um, and the same would be true if there was if you went out and you found the trait at a particular corner was oversteer. You deal with it in the moment, you do the correct input, you know, you remove your throttle input, you turn into the slide, you keep the front wheels pointed where you want to go and then continue. And then the next corner, you've got more of a, a baseline idea of what to expect from the car and you will approach the corner very slightly differently as a consequence. So whatever you did that provoked that oversteer at the previous corner, you'll do a bit less of that. Yeah. And that's, again, it's pretty subconscious. But what isn't subconscious is when you get back to the pits, you get to then reflect on how that session went. Generally, you can then kind of review what you've done, maybe look at data, look at onboard video, then have a think about what you could do differently next time. And then you've got a bit more mental a time to kind of mentally process, how will I approach the next run? Will I have changed the setup to try and avoid that problem next time? If I can't change the setup, you'll just expect, you'll know what to expect from the outset and you'll just probably deal with it even better than the first time where it was all happening in real time. Um, so adapting to the different things, um, to answer the question, yeah. it's not something you're really thinking about. Different drivers will be better or worse at having the correct response to each of those situations. That's all. That isn't that that's interesting. And I, and I wonder if, if that's, you know, the challenge Perez was perhaps facing when the car went away from the characteristics that he was better able to adapt to subconsciously. You might even not really realize it as the car develops and then you suddenly go, Oh, I can't. I can't drive around these problems as, as well anymore. Go on, Matt. Well, I want to follow up a little bit on that. Um, also from the coaching side from you, if you don't mind. Uh, it's been my experience learning other sports that you're either a field player or you're an analytical player. Do you find that there are certain drivers who are absolutely field drivers, no matter what you say to them, and that there are others who are absolutely analytical about things? Yes, I, I would say your your development, your formative years and how you've gone about them uh, will will really dictate how you end up in your final form 
and how much of a proportion either of those things you are, whether you're just relying on the feel or whether you prefer to really dig into the data. And hopefully every good driver will have a balance of both. Um, and again, as with the as with the style differences, we're talking about within quite a small range. It's probably a similar thing here. Um, every driver is relying on feel. That's why you know you don't have super super high power steering in all the cars, um, which would be lovely and easy physically on your arms. <laughs> you need a certain level of detail through a steering um, through the steering column through the steering wheel, and so there is definitely feel that you're relying on. It's also why a lot of professional drivers suck on simulators unless they've had a load of practice on simulators, like most of them nowadays yes. have back in the day i'm sure you remember in the not too distant past formula one drivers who just didn't like simulators schumacher was an example i think partly because he felt motion sick but other drivers will have not really used simulators even if they were available because it lacks the the g-force feel in most cases they couldn't deal with it um whereas drivers that are, have grown up in the modern era they've got a kind of separate part of their driving brain which is probably dedicated to being able to drive without just having g-force doesn't Ham the- hamilton fall into that of of having said he doesn't really favor using the simulator a lot yeah i'm sure hamilton is still really good on the simulator <laughs> yeah, but there are yeah. probably drivers who would be way worse than him in a in a real car that would beat him on simulators mm-hmm. because the they haven't they haven't developed their driving ability um relying on feeling the g-force they've just got more of a more of a percentage of the inputs that they need to go fast will be coming from the visual and the sound aspect and what you can feel through the steering wheel, which is still very good on a simulator. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that some of the simulators we're talking about also include a motion element. And if you're very highly attuned to the in-real-life physical and there's lag between the motion and what your eyeball is processing then that will make you feel very, very sick, very, very rapidly. And for drivers who grew up without learning video games, basically, that could absolutely be a part of it as well. Uh, just to, to end on adapting, uh, adapting in that question to different driving styles. I do remember one of the first things like you taught me was the, how to t- detect understeer. I think it's, it's quite an interesting topic because... Uh, you said, you know, you mustn't crank steering on. In go-karts, where they're generally very understeery, that is what you see quite a lot. And I think you took me just, you took me from uh, good at a stag do or, or a work do to, to just, you know, a little step above that. What I now find at the Miss Apex events is that people will fly off into a corner ahead of me. I'll lose ground on them. And then they end up pushing into a corner, even though they, they've got their steering locked. And, you know, and you get to go underneath maybe five or six people sometimes at, at, at turn one. And, and it's detecting that if the steering's gone light and it's not actually, it, it's not, um, you're not giving you feedback through your hands, it's because you're not feeling any, any grip. And the instinct is, I'm not turning, therefore turn more. And, and it's, it's, it was so interesting to me, the journey of just going, oh, no, you actually, you either need to slow down to get the grip. Or, or have the steering a little bit more open to find that that grip. And I think that's something that, that most casual race fans would not have known. And I certainly wouldn't have known without you explaining it to me. And some very good race drivers will go through their entire driving career and probably not necessarily think about these things, why they do these things. Yeah. They will know subconsciously they will have the correct response to these different situations, the different traits a car or a cart is giving them. But they might have never necessarily analysed why that is um i think it definitely helps you it helps your overall driving ability and, and certainly your analytical 
skills if you have thought about this as an instructor and a coach it's something which is unavoidable when you're trying to mm. relay to someone that sat next to you why they should do a certain thing understanding the concepts why why you need to do a certain input um, or change an input to achieve something understanding why you do that is quite important because quite often the person that you're telling would like to know why um, and it will help them going forward identify and have more confidence in the things that they're doing and, and the changes they're making to their inputs and the understeer one is just such a oh, big one yeah. such a common one as you said most people think the car isn't turning enough so i need to turn more and i'm sure i've said this on this program before but i bet a very high proportion of road accidents where someone has a frontal impact is because they've turned to try and avoid something the car's begun understeering and instead of reducing the speed instead of maintaining the amount of steering lock they actually need and slowing down to an appropriate speed for that amount of steering lock they do the thing you just said the car isn't turning enough therefore i should turn more they make the whole thing worse and they just go straight on but understanding why you should do that i think helps you just as a yeah. driver in general i'm sure like people driving their cars or on karting or sim I, before you told me about it i just would have this sensation where sometimes you know the steering goes goes light and you you don't know why you don't know what you're doing but once you recognize that as as understeer it's actually it's fairly easy to correct um, a great question there thank you and of course not a stupid question at all uh, from maria um so we'll end the the driving coaching questions there because that was our ulterior motive if you like the what you're hearing from brad and think you would like him to make you faster on a real track or on a sim brad absolutely yeah, yeah the yeah, prices yeah. are obviously quite different yes. as well <laughs> yes uh, yes i bet they are um go and check out the full bri- uh, price list at bradphilpot.com forward slash coaching and as someone who has benefited from brad's brad's coaching you you will not regret it at all um but i think from a, a viewer point of view a listener point of view and an f1 fan point of view we've all got extra things to look out for next time we watch on boards which is fantastic uh, but let's uh, quickly talk about when you were talking about uh, f1 drivers that do a lot of sim racing lando norris famously does a lot of sim racing max verstappen wants to get a sim racing rig on his private jet i, I read somewhere and uh, so more and more of these younger drivers do a lot of sim racing and love sim racing i think not as a practice necessarily to what they're doing you know, they genuinely enjoy sim racing as a sport in itself yeah i think some of it is practice especially mm. if you're at the factory on the f1 sim you know there'll definitely be an element of practice circuit familiarity that kind of thing uh, and maybe more specifically if, if they're changing something on the car that that you can simulate it'll be for that but at home in their home sims doing i racing which is i think what most of the most of the top drivers tend to do as their preferred mm. um their preferred simulator program it, it will be for keeping sharp enjoying it just because they enjoy racing you know we all enjoy racing and that's the reason that they mm. race is because because it's fun um and doing it more even in the virtual world is definitely good mental prep for doing it in the real world um, regardless of the fact that you might not be experiencing the same g-forces just being in more racing situations provided they're simulated accurately um, yeah. when you're racing against real people they're having real reactions obviously the better the people you're racing against the more realistic those reactions and positions that they'll be on on the track when you're having battles that kind of thing the more accurately they reflect the real mm. world and it's just good practice for that element of the driving i mean that's that's why i pushed us uh, you know in the direction of of i racing obviously you got me hooked onto that so you were the gateway drug uh, in your garage holding a duck one minute experiencing high quality sim racing the next um, but uh, the one of the big appeals was you know you can go racing there and you can be on track with rubens barrichello uh, with um 
uh, Haas driver who hurt his hand. Why is that name disappeared? Magnussen. From my... No, the Tarmac other one, Kevin. the French one. Grosjean. Grosjean. Oh my goodness, Romain. I forgot that. Yeah, before his accident when he was still in F1, I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was being lapped by Romain Grosjean and I was uh, trying to stay ahead of him. And I did. I managed to not be lapped. And that was a, that was a real thr- thrill. Um, but a lot of guys do this. And uh, Max Verstappen was in a high profile event recently, the Le Mans 24 hour. And he was he was very unhappy. So we are going to promote a, a, a similar type of event that we're doing. But why wasn't Max Verstappen happy? Yeah, so I I'm famously not a Max Verstappen fan. No. I was fully I was fully in his camp and agreeing with his reaction to this particular race. So just to fill people in, this is old news in terms of it happened a few weeks ago now. Uh, but there's a big official sim race called the Le Mans Virtual, which uses the R Factor Two platform, which is one of the major sim racing platforms. And um, it, for the last few years, it's had the license to run the official Le Mans 24 hours. And so you get quite a lot of real world teams, real world drivers and professional sim teams competing, putting in lots of hours of practice, um, lots of promotion and extremely professional broadcast. So the way the event was broadcast was effectively television quality, like you'd see mm. the real Le Mans 24 hours. Um, and Unfortunately, it was all let down by technical errors. And that's actually been the case for the last few years. There have been server issues, people being disconnected at random, groups of people being disconnected, um, or red flags needing to happen where um, the game itself, the sim program, was was just not working properly for whatever reason. There was quite a, kind of a litany of issues. And Verstappen's team were one of those affected. Um, and he understandably was very annoyed that they were disconnected through no fault of their own. We appreciate computer issues are Mm. part of sim racing, but this wasn't something under the control of him or his team. It wasn't like his own router failed. This was a a problem with the the server itself that everyone was connected to. Um, And effectively, he thought that all the time he'd spent um, practicing and a lot of hours is taken practicing and preparing and developing the setups and working with your teammates, all the same things that you do in real life, just from your own simulator at home. Um, he felt all that had gone to waste and he was very angry about that. And it was because it wasn't the first time it's happened a number of times and effectively from my point of view, and this is just the view of Brad's mm. not, I guess, <laughs> missed apex as a whole, but the platform they're using R fact two, which unfortunately has the, the um, exclusive rights to run any event called the Le Mans 24 hours as a sim race. Um, and I believe they go after people who, who try and do one themselves. Uh, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's not really up to running an event like right. this. And the frustrating thing is that there are other platforms, one in particular, iRacing, which is our preferred platform and Max's and Norris and a few other guys that we mentioned um, that is more than capable and, and actually frequently runs much bigger events than this without most of the major problems that were experienced. So that's the kind of, that's the long and short of it. Um, but that's it, quite it, a good introduction. It was to- quite a big, like, no holds barred put down from Verstappen on a on a live stream. And, you know, some people were quite critical of that. But I think I think, think you and I probably share their, his frustration. So a lot of people were, a lot of people were criticizing him saying, you know, oh, he's getting so annoyed about a game. But ultimately, <gasps> if if you want esports and sim racing to be taken seriously as a as a sport, which they clearly do because they're running a massive professional broadcast, licensed, etc., that's supposed to be super super realistic, 
you can't also then say, oh, it's only a game when things <laughs> go wrong. Yeah. If you expect people, if you expect the reigning double Formula One world champion to enter your event, take it super seriously, do the prep, you know, spend his time, his valuable time, probably doing all of the, putting in all the effort that's required for an event like that, and not just him, all the other participants involved as well. You can't then, when it goes wrong, and it's not, it's not the driver's fault, the team's fault, just say, oh, it's only a game. What's he getting annoyed about? He's getting annoyed over nothing. Because at that point, why don't we all just play PlayStation and, and, or a game of Mario Kart? That isn't what this is. This is supposed to be a realistic, professional simulator event mimicking okay. the professionalism of the real world one. Well, okay. Well, that, I think if you uh, weren't following that story closely, hopefully that's given you a good insight. So you've, you've told me that, that there's litigation, so we have to be careful with the, the name of uh, what's our event going to be called? So the event that we're running um, is at the same circuit virtually. Okay. Can we say the name uh, of the is, circuit? It's the Circuit de la Sarthe, which is the official name for the Le Mans 24-hour circuit. And our event is called the M4M 24 Hours by Missed Apex Podcast. Um, M4M being the event sponsor and um, <laughs> Missed Apex Podcast being the podcast you're listening to um, and, and really the organizer of the event. And the reason we're allowed to do it is because we're not saying it is the Le Mans 24 Hours. If we were to name the event <laughs> the official Missed Apex Le Mans 24 hour race. They'd come after we would, us. Okay. They would come after us and probably try and shut it down. But it's not that. There's nothing preventing us from running an event on that track. It's just you're not allowed to pretend it is the official one. I have a solution. We just call it the alleged. No, maybe that is the solution. <laughs> maybe. But if you want to. <laughs> so this is our second part of our, our ulterior motive. Well, what date is that on, Brad? So it's the 27th and 28th of May oh, this yeah, year. Sure. We're Obviously teasing that. 24 hours. Yeah, we're 12 teasing that. 12 till 12. Nice. Um, but we're teasing that quite far off because our ulterior motive is that we would like you to, to get interested in watching that as an event. Uncle Steve actually does a really great uh, pro, uh, program on it, a great broadcast on that, which you'll be able to see for our F3 Cup that's coming up on the 18th of February as well. Um, if you are interested, there is a link to a Discord in the in the show notes below where you can kind of register your your interest. So 15 quid if you want to enter a full team for that uh, 24 hour. But also if you're an individual, get in touch with me, spanners at mistapex.net, and I'll try and group people together into listener teams as well. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of today's show. We'll see you next on Sunday for a live stream go and follow matt at mattpt55 go and follow brad by searching for bradley philpot on all the social medias and go and check out his coaching at bradleyphilpot.com forward slash coaching nice and easy and since i'm back you may as well follow me on twitter as well at spanners ready and follow the podcast at missed apex f1 on twitter think about being a patron patreon.com forward slash missed apex but wherever we see you next work hard be kind and have fun this was Missed Apex Podcast. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... 
you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.